Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks for these words to us, as challenging as they might be. We pray that you might make some sense out of them for our lives and for our futures, not only for us, but for our neighbor. And this we pray in the name of Christ, your beloved. Amen and amen. Well, it isn't coincidental, I think, that these words come to us as we are six weeks from the general election. It's getting hot and heavy, if you haven't noticed. Things are getting a bit um, close. And um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you probably have taken notice of this. But this election season is a bit different than the ones we've had before, I'm sure. Um, It feels as though there are a lot of disaffected and angry people who feel feel like they haven't had their say. They haven't been represented. Their views, their ideas haven't been represented. And, um, and so they're bound to be heard. They're bound to be heard. And so we see this in the news. Um, and we see it in our neighborhood. We see, you know, signs going up and the way that people deface those signs and the messages that they put on them and the words that they put on them. And it's troubling. It's troubling to me. Because, um, of course, I come from a place that, you know, this stuff is really palatable, and it is dangerous. And so it's concerning um, for the first time in a decade to, uh, to feel as though there's a seething anger underneath um, in our politics and that we don't know what to do about it. And here this morning we hear from Jeremiah, the prophet, who basically has the same approach. It's basically, you know, as though Jeremiah wants to pick up the phone and ring God and get a hold of the complaints department. Can I speak with the manager? <laughs> it's one of those moments in the Old Testament. And he just says, I don't, I don't know why things are so bad. I've, I've done everything I need to do. I've done everything right, and yet my life is miserable. And everything that you said would happen has not happened, and all the joys of my life are gone, and I don't know what to do about it, and I am angry. And anger underneath these words from Jeremiah. Then, of course, we hear these words from Paul. And Paul here is speaking about this ethic that he thinks new Christians should embody. And I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, there are some pretty strange words that come just before this section in chapter 12 of the letter to the Romans. Uh, the heading, which is not something that Paul wrote, but something that editors put in, says, Marks of a true Christian. Oof. That's a high bar, marks of the true Christian. Because in one sense, it feels like the list that has been put out here is an impossible ethic. Love your enemies, feed them, clothe them. I mean, this isn't something we're seeing in our politics anywhere in the world, not just here, anywhere in the Western world, never mind the rest of the world. We're not seeing this ethic lived out. We're not seeing lived out with those who claim to be the most Christian and the most vocal and the most available. We don't see this ethic lived out at all. And so it's no wonder that when people in our country who want nothing to do with religion and want nothing to do with Christianity or Christians see this in the public sphere, they go, oh, well, all of my worries and all of my Judgments, all of my ideas have turned out to be correct, haven't they? Because that's what a lot of people think about the Christian religion. Interestingly enough, I think this gets to the heart of what Paul is trying to say 
in the entire letter to the Romans, but in chapter 12 in particular. He's speaking to Christians who are living and worshiping and trying to be church in the midst of the, basically the capital city of empire, right? Where Caesar is God. And he is telling them that they're not going to be powerful. They're not going to have an electoral majority. They're not going to be able to legislate their own way and their own understanding of morality. They're going to have to live it out amongst themselves. And it's going to be difficult. And what he's offering them, what he's asking them to do, is consider that all that has come before, all of their prayers and all of their worship and all of their fellowship has led to this moment where he thinks that they need to be transformed. He says this earlier in chapter 12. Do not be conformed to the world. Don't be angry and violent and militant like the rest of the world. Don't wrest power out of the hands of the poor and the marginalized. Don't squash people. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Learn to think differently. Realize that that's not God's plan for the church. God's plan for the church is to be marginal, to be small, is to be weak. But there's some kind of power in that marginalization. There's some kind of power in that weakness. There's some kind of power in that position in the larger society. Wake up to that. Wake up to that. Take hold of it, he says. Now, as Presbyterians, we don't really talk about conversion that much. Most of us who call ourselves Presbyterians have been Presbyterian for as long as we've been able to speak. And so when people say things like, how did you become a Christian? You're like, I grew up in a Christian home. I always went to church. We even have a word for it. We call ourselves cradle Presbyterians, from the cradle to the grave. It's just we've grown up in it. We've always been in the church. We've always been in and around the church. That being said, there is a strong element of conversion in the wider Christian tradition. And I'm not just here thinking about deathbed conversions or those kind of things that we see in the movies, but I'm thinking about what the Bible talks when it talks about something akin to the conversion of the imagination, of being able to think radically different about something and act on it. And it's right there when Paul says in the beginning of chapter 12, as I've said before, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is one of the hardest things to wrap our minds around. There's a movement that's happening all over the world, particularly around millennials. So people, you know, who are basically 40 and under, um, who have been raised in churches and raised in religious traditions, not just Christian, but all kinds of different religious traditions, that have felt harsh and uh, very narrow-minded and very judgmental, and they're beginning to leave those churches and those traditions in droves, and they're beginning to find each other in community online, and they're beginning to unpack the trauma of growing up in these fundamentalist spaces. It's called the deconstruction movement. The de- and it owes a lot to Derrida and philosophical schools of thought that have to do with deconstructing, but they're beginning to pick apart the faith that they were handed over very young, And they're beginning to take it apart and look at it and wonder if it's fit for purpose, 
for their own lives, but also if it's fit for purpose for the world that they inhabit, the world that they have to go to work in or university in, the friends that they have who come from all different religious traditions and none. And they're beginning to rethink everything. And it's called the deconstruction movement. An interesting thing about it is that at its heart is this sense of not being conformed like a mold, like a stamp to their religious traditions, but beginning to be renewed by their own minds, to begin to think for themselves, to begin to think together and read the Bible and read their holy text and wonder what it demands of their lives. Now, a lot of people who do this end up opening a door that they never are able to re-enter. It's an exit from church. It's an exit from faith. It's an exit from organized religion. But others realize that they were taught and given a faith and a dogma and an understanding of God that simply is too small for the size of their faith. And they have this overwhelming sense that they've outgrown their own beliefs. Now, most of the time when we think about conversion, we think about somebody becoming some kind of a new religion, becoming Christian, becoming Jewish, becoming Muslim, becoming whatever. But I would argue that this morning the text offers us a different version of conversion, a different narrative. That one of the things that Paul is trying to say is that those people who say to you, you know, I'm very spiritual but I'm not religious, might be on to something. Because I think that's at the heart of what he's saying to the Romans. Right? Stay living in a world that is literally mastered by religious dogma. There are things to do and things not to do. And he's saying you must find a spirituality that provides you with enough resource to navigate living life well. And the kind of conversion that he's asking them to do is not a conversion to a new religion. Jesus, Paul, all these people never imagined themselves converting to some new religion. They were Jews. And they never imagined themselves not being Jews. But what they did imagine themselves was living differently, embodying Judaism differently holding their beliefs differently and informing their actions in different ways. This is the unfinished work, I think, of the Christian faith. Not to convert people to our religion, but to offer people the idea that they're being offered a conversion to a new type of humanity, a new way of being human, a different way of navigating life different resources, different values, different mores, different things that guide them through living the lives they have. Jesus knew this when he prays in the Gospel of John. I pray that they would all be one, my disciples. It's the unanswered prayer of all unanswered prayers. And Paul picks it up when he exhorts Christians to love one another in this passage from chapter 12. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. It feels like an impossible ethic. And it proves that Paul's been reading the Sermon on the Mount. Because it continues, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And don't be arrogant, 
but associate yourself with the lowly. Don't claim to be wiser than you are. Don't repay evil for evil. Take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. And here's the kicker, and if at all possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Never avenge yourselves. Believe room for wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you heap burning coals on their heads. Burning coals, this image of repentance from the Old Testament. Like Isaiah 6, where the coals touch the tongue and a confession comes out. It's calling people not to destruction. It's calling people to renew their own minds, to live differently, to think differently, to act differently. Our civilization, our societies are becoming increasingly polarized. And we we tend to naturally decamp into our own tribes and our circles more than we can ever imagine. There's a certain stubbornness that's deep within us. And we surround ourselves with an echo chamber of voices that we see ourselves in. Talkback radio, publications online, social media, information, misinformation, whatever it might be. We tend to exist in an echo chamber that just mirrors to us that we're right. That what we think about the world and what we think about those people, the us versus them, is right. And so it leaves Christians who are on the margins in a very desperate situation It leads us to start thinking down the lines of, if I only had some power, I'd be able to fix things. So there is this sense that some people of the Christian religion seek power because power would allow them to legislate, to get back on track, to outlaw certain things. But the problem with that is that it basically says that the gospel is so uncompelling that if we can't call people to live differently, if we can't love people to live differently, then we'll just require them to live differently. We'll legislate righteousness, which seems like an oxymoron. This is the big question that Jesus takes up in the Gospels when he talks to the Pharisees. And it's the big question that Paul is wrestling with, with these people who are trying to navigate how to be Christian in these mixed environments where some are Jews and some are Gentiles, and they don't speak the same language or have the same ethnic background or the same customs, and they're trying to do church together. And one of the things he wants to caution them to, and he'll go on to caution them over and over, is be careful about mixing your grievances and your will to power with your religion. Because when you mix power and law with religion, you end up getting something very dangerous. And that thing is the thing that killed Jesus. And as I said before, I'll say it again. When we mix this will to power with our religion, it's like mixing horse manure and ice cream. It does nothing to taint the horse manure, but woe to those who would eat that ice cream. You get my point. Paul seems to say that there is a way forward. And in his culture, in the background of Romans, a culture of literal human sacrifice, 
He's saying, be living sacrifices. Be different kinds of sacrifices. Offer your lives, and not the lives of others, on some altar, but offer your life, your will. Offer your desires to God. Take them to God. And that's important to note. And every once in a while, somebody comes around that embodies this, right? Jesus, but also people like Gandhi, Francis of Assisi, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King. Every once in a while, society raises up somebody who is an ultimate exemplar of this ethic that Paul is outlining. So when we say this feels impossible, God gives us an example of somebody who hope against hope shows us that it is possible, that it is plausible. And if we take just Martin Luther King and his nonviolent revolution that he left in the 1960s, he was committed to this idea that he could not use violence to gain equality. That violence in and of itself was so defective that it could not even serve the purposes of justice. Imagine that. That that's how defective violence was. That it could not even serve the purposes of justice. And he knew that it wasn't black people, that he, the minds of whom he needed to change. No, he needed to reach the converted minds of the white middle class. He needed housewives to think differently. He needed businessmen on the streets at lunch counters to look around and think that this violence that was being perpetrated against black people was insane and that racism made no sense. His, the principal target of the civil rights movement was the mind and imagination of white moderates, white Christian moderates, people who were on the fence and weren't sure. And King knew that hate could not do it. He knew that violence couldn't do it. He knew that only love could accomplish the impossible because it's the only thing that ever had. And so I sit here, read these words, and I think to myself, what do I do? What does it have to do with my world and my life? And I come back to verse 18. If it's all possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you. It's not a call to be a saint. It's not a call to be King or Teresa or Gandhi or anyone else. It's simply to live peaceably with as many as you can, as much as you can. And so I wonder... I wonder if this electoral season had examples of Christians who embodied this ethics, what it, what it might look like on the national stage to model a gentleness, which I think is what's missing. There's so much anger and frustration, and I say, where is the gentleness of Christ? Where is the gentleness of God, which is what the church is meant to embody? What if those who are curious about Christianity found us to be peaceful and accepting and gentle and harmonious and loving each other and taking care of each other such that they went, I want to get a part of that. I want to know what makes you tick. I want to know what's going on there. I think that's what has animated Christianity in the past, to care about the poor and the marginalized. This is the conversion that Paul is after, the renewing of our mind. The conversion that Jesus modeled in his life, it's the, what we're meant to model in our world. And in these days, I think we can only pray that God would give us the grace to live it out and to be these people in this place. So we ask God to give us the faith 
to follow after Jesus in these ways. Thanks be to God. Amen.